0: The reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, found on page 1134. Romans chapter 8, 1134, starting at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, and yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Pam, and uh, do keep that uh, passage open before you. Romans 8, as we've, we know, is really the grand plan of God's uh, salvation for human beings to come into relationship with him now, which will last forever. And you can divide chapter 8 into three parts, the past, the present, and the future, which you'd uh, see if you look at the yellow outline that we have, which has also got some suggested holiday reading, which was inspired by reading this passage uh, this week. Now in the the past, verses 1 to 4, as we saw last week, we saw what God has done, uh, that God has done what the law could not do, and we read in verse 4 of the righteous requirements of the law, and we learnt that God has standards, which are an expression of his character And the Lord's requirements are simply ones which uh, we as human beings um, ought to live up to, but we don't. We don't measure up, whether we compare, whether we look at the state of the world today and what people in their generality get up to, or whether we have insight into our own hearts and minds, our attempts, are pretty pitiful. They are unimpressive. And it's not difficult to guess the verdict if that was the position and nothing changed. It is a verdict of condemnation. Now, that verdict may be future, but the present, if we realize that, what Paul is saying, is depressing, since the law can offer no way out. It's not a way of salvation at all, because we cannot live up to it. It's too high a standard. And so we are trapped. We are stuck in a hopeless predicament. We know we're in the wrong with God, but we know there's no way out. There's no way we can be put right. And so aware of that, we either close down and anesthetize our brains and try not to think about it, or we're on the lookout for a rescue, an external rescue. And that's the rescue that we read of last week, a rescue facilitated by God through his Son, verse 3, and through his Spirit, verse 4. Through the death of his Son on earth, in the likeness of sinful man, God was able to make us right with himself, or justified is the uh, is the term used. He condemned our sins in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, who took responsibility for our sins and he did what we could not do. And through the power of his Spirit in us, he sanctifies us or makes us more like himself. Well, that's how he's done it but why did he do it? Obviously, so we'd be put right with God, justified, but there's more to it than that. We saw in verse 4, in order that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled or fully met in us, we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And we learnt three important points, that holiness is the purpose of Christ's coming to earth and his death on the cross. John Stott, in his commentary, writes, We are specifically told that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful man, that's the incarnation, and condemned sin in the sinful nature, which is the atonement, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. God condemned sin in Christ, he says, so that holiness might appear in us. So how we live now is very important. The second thing we learned was holiness consists of righteousness, the just requirements of the law. Now it's true that simply obeying or trying to obey the law cannot earn our justification. We cannot earn a place in God's good books because basically, He requires perfection, and we don't come anywhere near. But it should be evidence of our justification by grace. And thirdly, we learnt that holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot keep the law because of the weakness of our sinful nature. But if, verse 4, we live, or literally we walk according to the Spirit, we're in with a chance. The Spirit within can enable us to defeat and overcome the sinful nature. Now, of course, we know from experience that we fail. But it is possible to resist sin if we draw upon the resources that God has made available to us. But even though we can do that, we don't do that. So verses 1 to 4 tell us that we should be holy, because Christ Jesus came and died for us, that holiness is conformity to God's character, and conformity, that is by conforming to his law, and holiness is achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. And so we turn to verses 5 to 17 to find out what it means to live or walk according to the Spirit. But before we do, it is important, it's vital in fact, to remember verse 1, which is the headline verse for this whole chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a celebrated Bible teacher um, in the the last century, said this of verse 1. Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. A contemporary Bible teacher, Tim Keller, answers the question that he puts, what happens if we forget there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ? And he writes, on the one hand we feel more guilt unworthiness and pain than we should. On the other hand, we will have far less motivation to live a holy life. Christians, he says, who don't understand no condemnation only obey out of fear and duty. That is not nearly as powerful a motivation as love and gratitude If we don't grasp the full wonder, now no condemnation, we will understand each word of this chapter, he says, but completely miss the sense of it. Lloyd-Jones sums this up with a very useful illustration. This is what he says. The difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of the state and a husband Of doing or saying something he shouldn't in his relationship with his wife he's not breaking the law he's wounding the heart of his wife that is the difference it's no longer a legal matter it is a matter of personal relationship and love the man does not cease to be the husband legally in this instance Law does not come into the matter at all, he writes. In a sense, it is now something much worse than legal condemnation. He says, I would rather offend against the law of the land objectively outside of me than hurt someone whom I love. You see, in such a case, you have sinned, of course, but you have sinned against love. So you may and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. So we turn from what God has done in the past to what he's up to in the present, today, in us. What living in the way way of holiness means. And we look at verse 5, and it's first of all about A mindset. We read, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature deserves. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Now, mindset is all about preoccupations. What do we spend our time thinking about, fretting about? What is it that uh, engrosses us? What do we invest our time, our energy, our money, even our prayers in? Ask yourself that, and it will reveal your mindset. And your mindset will reveal whether you live according to the sinful nature or according to the spirit. To set the mind on what the sinful nature desires, he says, is death. Not will be, but is now death because that mental orientation leads to sin, and sin leads to separation from God, which is defined in the Bible as death, spiritual death with him in this life, eternal death in the next one. But to have a mindset on what the Spirit desires is to have life now, because the mindset leads to holiness and continuing fellowship with God which is life. And it brings not only life, but peace. Peace with God, peace within ourselves. So we have integration and harmony. That should incentivize us to pursue holiness. By contrast, the mindset of the sinful nature brings death and war within us. Verses 7 and 8, we read, the sinful mind is hostile to God, It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. They can't please God, because the only way to please Him is of course to submit to Him and His law and obey it. Imagine that you're in a civil war, a civil war, let's take the American civil war, and you are on the Confederate side. You may well do acts of great kindness to your uh, fellow combatants. You may even make sacrifices to protect them. But you would not please the President of the Union of the United States because you're a member of one of the rebel states, that you have not submitted yourself to the authority of the President, Abraham Lincoln. So the mindset driven by the desires of the sinful nature is hostile to God's law and will not submit to it, while the mindset driven by the Spirit concurs with God's law and delights in living it out. So we have two categories of people. We have those who live according to the sinful nature and those who live according to the Holy Spirit with two mindsets or two outcomes, those driven by what the sinful nature desires and those driven by what the Holy Spirit desires, leading to two ways of life, in accordance with the sinful nature or in accordance with the Holy Spirit, which results in two spiritual states, death or life. If we only have the sinful nature with our mindset on its desires, we will live according to that nature and so die, Paul writes. But if we have the Holy Spirit within us, we set our minds on what the Holy Spirit desires, and so walk according to the Spirit, and so live. What we are, you see, governs how we think, and how we think governs how we behave, and how we behave governs our relationship to God, death or life. Our mindset, our outlook, our worldview is vital. In verse 9, Paul applies what he's just written to his readers in Rome. Now in verse 8, he had just written, those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Now in verse 9, he says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Now, it's very important here to um, notice the synonyms, words which mean the same as each other. If you do, you'll save yourself a lot of angst and confusion. So, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ, they are one and the same. They are the Holy Spirit to be controlled by or literally to be in the Spirit and having the Spirit live in you are just two ways of looking at the same experience. To have the Spirit live in you, verse 9, and to have Christ in you, verse 10, is the same thing. It is having the Spirit or the Spirit of Christ living in us that marks out the Christian from the non christian When we were in Adam, as it were, in our fallen nature, we had the sinful nature living in us and dominating us. But now in Christ, whilst we still have that sinful nature, we have the spirit within us to enable us to do battle and subdue that sinful nature. The mark of belonging to Christ is to have the spirit of Christ in us. Now, verses 10 and 11 inform us of the consequences of having Christ in us. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, then you have life, life for our spirits now, verse 10, and life for our mortal bodies in the end, verse 11. The body is dead because of Adam's sin. The spirit is alive because of Christ's righteousness. The same spirit now living in you is the same one who raised Christ, Christ's natural body from the dead. He did it for him because he was in him, and he will do it for you because he is in you. And so, unsurprisingly, verse 12, we are obligated to him. We're in debt to the Spirit, so we should live according to the Spirit, live up to our new status and privilege, and do nothing which contradicts it. The way to live is, quote verse 13, to put to death the misdeeds of the body and live. The way of the sinful nature is death. So to summarize, there are two categories of people. Those having the sinful nature, the unregenerate, as the the Bible would call them, and those who are living in the Spirit who are the regenerate or the born-again. The Roman readers, verse 9, are in the Spirit because Christ lives in them by the Holy Spirit and so they are alive. If we're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in us and as a result, we are alive. So we're in debt to the Spirit. And so we should be what we are to conform our conduct to our character and doing nothing inconsistent with the life of the Spirit within us. To put that negatively, Paul says we are to mortify or to put to death anything that arises from our sinful nature. So we have under the Spirit, under Christ, to get a grip of ourselves, to take control, to be very disciplined, to reject any habits or thoughts or practices we know to be wrong. But put more positively, we are to aspire, we are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit and wholeheartedly give ourselves, you know, in body, mind and soul to working out God's grand plan of salvation. And we help ourselves by drawing upon what are called the means of grace. Prayer, Bible study, and encouraging one another as we're pilgrims together on our road to the new world. Don't give in to the desires of the sinful nature. Get a grip and aspire to the Spirit's desires. And now, more briefly, verses fourteen to seventeen, and the spirit 's witness to our sonship, the work of the Holy Spirit continues, but what it uh, means what, um, but what it means to be a Christian is described in different terms in verse thirteen, it was "If you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, and in fourteen it is Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, they are, of course, closely parallel. Both refer to the activity of the Spirit, the first in terms of life and the second in terms of sonship, or literally, adoption. Keller remarks, if we want to understand who a Christian is and why being a Christian is a privilege, we need to appreciate divine adoption. Now, adoption was much more common in the Roman world than it was in the uh, Hebrew or the ancient Near Eastern society around the Roman Empire. Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have been very familiar with it. Adoption usually occurred where a wealthy man had no heir. A well-known example, probably the most celebrated in Roman history, is Gaius Julius Caesar and his adopting his son and heir who was his great nephew, Gaius Octavius Thurinus, who became Caesar Augustus upon his father's assassination. Now, the adopted person could be a child, they could be a youth, they could be an adult. And at the moment of their adoption, the adoptee had all their old debts and legal obligations paid off. They received a new name, and became instantly the heir of all that their father had. The new father became liable for all his son's actions, and the new son had new obligations to both honour and please his father. And that's what lies behind all of this in this passage. Throughout the passage, Christians are referred to three times as sons of God, 14, 15, and 19 and three times they're called children of God, 16, 17, and 21. Now, pause for thought. In our day, only gender-neutral language, children, is considered appropriate, and referring to men and women with a masculine pronoun, sons, is considered insensitive in some circles, maybe even in yours. So what do we do? Well, we shouldn't try and correct scripture because otherwise we'll miss the point. And it's very important, and I find quite an amusing point. It's true that in Rome, sonship was a status of privilege and power given only to males. Yet Paul now has the temerity to apply this to us, to all believers. This shows that God does not distinguish in giving honour. All Christians, male and female, are now heirs. It was subversive, what Paul was saying, to take a masculine-only institution and show that in Christ this institution of empowering through adoption is used of females as well as males without distinction. Keller points out Christian women should not resent being called sons any more than Christian men should resent being called part of the bride of Christ, as they are, for example, in Revelation 21. Christians are all sons and all the bride. And Keller has this line God is even handed in his use of metaphors. And each metaphor tells us something about our relationship with Christ. So just imagine that you are an orphan, maybe an AIDS orphan perhaps, your parents are dead, your extended family dead or unable to raise you because they just don't have the resources. You're left at best in an orphanage with a few hundred others, or at worst, left to roam the streets. And that is us, spiritually speaking, until we are adopted and given a dad. A dad who would provide and protect, with whom we could talk, from whom we could get guidance, one who knows us and loves us, and we know that. Now, not every human being is one of God's children. Remember in uh, John chapter one, it is those who receive him. He gave the right to become children of God. Or here, it is those who are led by the spirit who are the sons of God. To receive the spirit, which is an aorist tense, which means it's in the past and it's a one-off, is in verse 15, to receive, again, aorist and past and one-off, the spirit of sonship or adoption. The consequence being that God becomes our dad. And it's being aware of that relationship that the Holy Spirit is said to bear witness or give testimony to our spirit so that we know, so we have assurance. Now last week we in part looked at justification and this week we have flagged up adoption from this passage. It is helpful to compare and contrast the two. Both are obviously biblical and both are essential, but they are distinct. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares to penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ has been their substitute and sacrificed himself for them. He's tasted death in their place on the cross. Now, to be acquitted of sin and to receive peace with God is great, but justification doesn't imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. You could theoretically have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God at all. Now compare that with adoption. Adoption is a family idea. It's conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes takes us into his family and fellowship and makes us his children and heirs. Closeness, affection and generosity are all at the heart of that relationship. So a Christian is justified and a Christian is adopted. To be justified means to be forgiven by God for your past sins and acceptance of you for the future. To be adopted means to be picked up as an abandoned orphan and placed in a new family with God as your father and other Christians as your brothers and sisters. Now, which is the higher privilege? Dr. Jim Packer in one of the books I recommend on the back of the outline, in his book Knowing God, chapter 19, entitled Sons of God, is especially illuminating on this. Maybe it's because he has adopted children of his own. He points out that justification is the primary and fundamental blessing, but that adoption is the highest blessing, Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need, the need of forgiveness of sins. It's also our fundamental or our foundational blessing because from it, everything else that goes with salvation assumes it and rests on it, including adoption. But adoption is the highest blessing because it is a secure, intimate, developing relationship. To quote Packer, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. And if we are a child of God, then we are heirs too. In fact, we inherit what our older brother, Christ himself, inherits. And that is a great prospect. That is a future with a hope. And we'll turn our attention to that next week. But this week, we've seen how the Holy Spirit enables us to subdue our sinful nature. And how it bears witness to this new adoptive relationship with God as our Father. Amen.